0: In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction.
1: It's an epidemic. These cell phones inside were were a huge threat to the security of the institution, and they were constantly looking for them all over the United States, not just in Texas. And they can call a victim even, or run a criminal enterprise from inside.
0: John Moriarty, the former Inspector General for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, shares a story about how a serial killer got his hands on a contraband cell phone to threaten a Texas senator. A recent seizure at the maximum security Polanski prison unit in Texas underscores the problem. Officers confiscated 30 Samsung Galaxy cell phones and chargers hidden inside a long hollowed out wood beam. It arrived in a load of wood shipped from a home depot in Houston to be donated to the prison's craft shop. The Office of Inspector General arrested a couple who paid for the shipment. The investigation continues. The Polanski unit also houses Texas death row inmates. It was here in 2008 that one of those inmates set off a political firestorm by using a smuggled cell phone to threaten a Texas lawmaker. John Whitmire, the Texas State Senate's Criminal Justice Committee chairman received a shocking phone call. I know your daughter's names, man warned. I know how old they are. I know where they live. Then, in a chilling tone, the caller revealed the young women's names, ages, and addresses. Senator Whitmire said the call scared the hell out of him. And it should have. Richard Tabler, a wild-eyed serial killer nicknamed Blue, made the threatening phone call from inside Texas Death Row at the Polonski Unit, an hour's drive north of Houston. Tabler, a serial killer, had been convicted of capital murder in the 2004 Thanksgiving holiday weekend killings of two men and two teenage girls in Killeen, the home of Fort Hood. His accomplice was a soldier from the base who videotaped the murders. More on that later in this episode. John Moriarty, who was then the Inspector General, investigated the threats. You may recall from our earlier episodes that Moriarty was the undercover agent who played a key role in the capture of serial killer Kenneth McDuff. Tabler was as cold-blooded as McDuff and bizarre.
1: He was a very strange individual, as well as being a serial killer. Something wasn't right with him. You, I mean, you you would not uh, be more than two minutes talking to him and you could tell this guy's a bubble off, you know? I mean, he, he, he was definitely a bizarre, a uh, dangerous individual.
0: During the call, Senator Whitmire heard the distinct sound of prison noise in the background. Tabler held up the phone and asked, did you hear that? And replied, that's a prison. Whitmire questioned how Tabler got the phone. The death row inmate boldly replied that he paid $2,100 and even had a charger. It was the first of a series of calls Tabler made to the powerful senator complaining about living conditions on death row. In response, Texas locked down the 155,000 inmates in its prison system and conducted a massive search for contraband cell phones across 112 prison units. Corrections officers discovered 19 other illegal cell phones on death row and hundreds more across the system. Death row was supposed to be the system's most secure prison. Inmates are confined to individual cells for 23 hours a day. They are kept isolated from other inmates when guards escort them out to shower and to a recreation cage for one hour a day. A month before he threatened the senator, Tabler racked up 2,800 minutes on his cell phone and shared it with nine other prisoners on death row. The incident in 2008 revealed a security problem that Moriarty says plagues U.S. prisons to this day.
1: It's an epidemic. These cell phones inside were were a huge threat to the security of the institution, and they were constantly looking for them And, and uh, all over the United States, not just in Texas. But they can reach out, just like they talk to Whitmire, and they can call a victim even or, you know, call... Uh, i mean there 's so many things they run a criminal enterprise from inside well, I even heard of cases where drones were dropping cell phones in prison many many of those cases or even you know drones and that that when when that technology came about with the with the release uh, buttons where you could drop and release, and that was definitely another. Another big problem for the security of these institutions with contraband being dropped in and, and, um, uh, you know, we've caught uh, other gang members that were using these drones to, to drop in, mainly narcotics. They had a case at Darrington where one of them crashed and they got the drone. And in some of the facilities, people would... Uh, park nearby and then walk into near the perimeter fences of the prison and and throw contraband over i know there were cases out of the Beville area where they uh, they caught three uh, tango blast members leaving the scene after a drop who were out of houston i mean any way that you can imagine contraband being smuggled in they smuggled it in
0: already traced the purchase of the cell phone used by Tabler to a store in Waco, Texas, and 44 calls made on it to the home phone number of his mother in Georgia. Police arrested 60-year-old Lorraine Tabler when she arrived at the Austin airport to visit her son. She had been buying time for the phone. Tabler had nothing to lose. As a death row inmate once defiantly told me, what are you going to do? Kelby? Tabler had already asked a judge to end his appeals and schedule his execution.
2: He's a bizarre individual. Uh, I would really like to read a psychiatric report because I have never even heard of anybody attempting to do something like that. He, From the start, he said, put me to death.
0: Tim Steglich, then a deputy with the Bell County Sheriff's Department, investigated Tabler's murder spree. You may recall from our earlier series about serial killer Kenneth McDuff that Steglich found his accomplice and broke the case wide open. Tabler, known as Blue, rolled into Colleen from Los Angeles in 2004. A few months after his release from a California prison where he served his second sentence in four years for burglary and forgery, Tabler called his first trip to prison gladiator school. He lived with his mother and sister, sleeping on his mother's bedroom floor or with his girlfriend. Tabler sold drugs at Fort Hood, the nation's largest army post. The convicted criminal routinely passed through security at its gate dressed as a soldier using a fake military identification card.
2: I think he liked playing roles. And so he used that military ruse as kind of a rush, Mm -hmm. you know, going on and off base, which I can't tell you how many heads rolled over that. Um, But yeah, he was going in at 5 o'clock in the morning on base.
0: Tabler met 18-year-old Timothy Doan Payne, an Army private from Missouri at Fort Hood. They became inseparable. Tabler and Payne hung out together at Teaser's, one of the area's most popular topless bars located near the gate to the Army post. The cigarette-smoke-filled bar catered to soldiers who played pool and watched the dancers. A large American flag painted on an outside wall faced the parking lot. Payne was a regular a generous tipper who always sat near the right side of the stage for a view of its stripper pole. Tabler also was a regular, initially popular with many of the dancers installing stereos in some of their cars. Tabler claimed he was a gang member and had a tattoo on his head to prove it. He also spun stories of being a CIA operative and bragged about his arsenal of guns. Tabler, who was 25, became fixated on Amber Benefield, a 16-year-old dancer called Zoe. He pestered the dancers. His behavior became downright creepy. He quickly wore out his welcome. The bar's boisterous and popular Moroccan manager, 25-year-old Mohammed Amin Ramui, known as Amin, kicked Tabler out of the topless club. Permanently banned from the bar, an enraged Tabler drew up a hit list of a dozen targets for revenge. I'll have more on the murder and mayhem that followed after this break.
2: I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask
0: a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back
2: to our episode.
0: Richard Tabler launched his plot for revenge the day after Thanksgiving of 2004. He was gunning for Amin, the manager who kicked him out of the teaser's topless bar. Permanently banned and with a bruised ego, Tabler decided to get back at the manager and the dancers who had made fun of him. He lured Amin and his 28 year old friend, Hotham Frank Zaid, a used car dealer facing assault charges with the prospect of buying stolen stereo equipment for $1,500. Tabler had set up a drug buy earlier for $500 in X pills and $500 in cocaine, and he owed the dealer cash. He told his accomplice, Timothy Payne, the Army private, that he had no intention of selling anything. He was going to rob Amin and shoot him if he did not give up the cash. Tabler and Payne drove a borrowed pickup truck to the parking lot of an electric company located just outside the Killeen city limits. At 2.30 a.m., Amin rolled in with Zaid behind the wheel of their car. Tabler walked up to the driver's side window, started talking, and demanded to see the money. When Zaid refused, Tabler shot him in the head and put a round into Amin sitting beside him in the front passenger seat. Tabler yelled at Payne to open the passenger car door. He told Payne to search Amin's pocket for money while he looked in Zaid's pockets. During the search, Amin's head fell over on the sleeve of Payne's arm. It spooked him, and he urged Tabler to leave. Tabler was having none of that. He went to the passenger side and pulled Amin to the ground. Payne flipped the body onto its back so Tabler could search its pockets. Then, Tabler told Payne to cut the seatbelt off the driver, Zaid. Payne started to freak out. Tabler told his accomplice to watch for cars. He pulled Zaid out of the vehicle and looked inside for money. None was to be found. Next, a frustrated Tabler told Payne to get his video camera and start recording as he stood over Amin's body. As the tape rolled, Amin sputtered a gurgling sound from his lips and raised his hand. Tabler looked at the body and proclaimed to the camera, who's got the power now? And squeezed off a nine millimeter round point blank into Amin's head again, so close that the blood splattered onto Tabler's pistol. Tabler then stole a black bag out of the victim's car and they drove off to his girlfriend's house. When they arrived, she noticed that Payne's shirt had blood spots all over it. They calmly sat in her living room, watching the video. Afterwards, Tabler threatened to kill her and Payne if they ever told anybody about what they saw on the tape. The next day, they burned the tape and tried to wash evidence off the pickup truck. Tim Steglick soon learned from the Colleen police that a man called Blue was a possible suspect. Blue was the nickname for one of their drug informants, none other than Richard Tabler, who dealt drugs at Fort Hood. Staglitz started digging into Tabler's criminal history.
2: He had active felony warrants out of Florida, but being a Thanksgiving weekend, I couldn't get those felony warrants confirmed. They were non-extraditable at the moment, so you couldn't necessarily take him into custody on that. But I knew we had a problem.
0: Without evidence that Tabler was involved in the murders, there was no probable cause to get an arrest warrant, and time passed. Meanwhile, Tabler hatched a new murder plot, and Payne went along with it. Tabler suspected that two of the topless dancers at Teasers were spreading stories that he killed their manager. Two days after the Thanksgiving murders, Tabler and Payne lured the dancers to a remote state park with a promise to sell them cocaine. They were on their way to dance at a topless bar in Austin, driving a Jeep owned by a boyfriend. Tabler murdered 18-year-old Tiffany Lorraine Dotson, a pretty blonde dancer from California, and a fellow dancer he had fixated on, 16-year-old Amanda Benefield, a green-eyed, red-haired runaway from Louisiana called Zoe. After the murders, Tabler lost it when he heard that Staglich was on his trail.
2: He was threatening to come to the sheriff's office and start killing people, and he made a specific request to talk to me. So we had to station armed people throughout the The sheriff's office, because at that time, it wasn't that secure. the, The doors were open at the front.
0: Do you think he's coming there to kill you?
2: No, I think he truly wanted to talk to me. So I instructed the dispatchers. I said, when he calls again, he's got to be able to say something that will definitively put him on the scene. And at one point, he called back and he said, yeah, there was a cigar there, which was not in any of the media outlets. I said, that's him.
0: Once inside the interrogation room with Steglich, Tabler confessed. He thought all four murders were justified.
2: I guess about eight hours into the, into the interviews, Tabler puts up a timeout sign. I'm standing right next to him, and violating his space. He's getting nervous and he says, timeout. I shot him. And so, I said, okay. And so we reminded him of his rights again. We had been in there so long, sometimes you run into a problem with that. So I reminded him of his rights again. He says, no, I don't want a lawyer. And uh, he said, I also had a list of eight more people that I was going to kill. He told me a few of the names and one of them was in Coryell County. I contacted Coryell County. I said, get somebody over there right away to wherever this person lives and check on them because they were next, it was a female. I don't remember the name. Mm-hmm. And so they checked and they said, everything's fine. You thought so he might already her. I thought he might have already. He might, might have already. Uh, but he said there were eight more that he was going to take out.
0: Timothy Payne received a life sentence for his role in killing the strip club manager and his friend. Now 37, he will become eligible for parole in 2044. Tabler, now 44, was convicted of capital murder, and was sentenced to death in March 2007. He had these parting words for Steglich.
2: I saw him when I had gone back into the jail for something and they were moving him. And Tabler yells at me, hey Steglich, no hard feelings. And I just shook my head. I said, how in the world can you say something like that? But I didn't
0: say anything. As I explained at the beginning of this episode, four months after arriving on death row, Tabler used a contraband cell phone to threaten Senator Whitmire. But it didn't end there. A few months later, Tabler sent threatening letters to Whitmire, warning that he could get to him anywhere. A 51 year old Methodist chaplain admitted to smuggling Tabler's letters out of the prison during a two-month period. He was supposed to be ministering to the prison's 2,900 convicts, including 328 men on death row. Tabler agreed to do an interview with me, but was forbidden to meet because of his disciplinary problems. Now 44, Tabler replied in a typewritten letter to me, stating that he is working on a faith-based book for teens, stating... The young man that did this horrible crime back in 2004 is not the same man that you want to interview here at the Polanski Unit's death row. I just made a mistake in poor judgment, and there is not a day that goes by that I don't beat myself up over it and wish that there was a rewind button so I could return to that night and walk away or be like Jesus and raise the dead, but I cannot. Now, from my reporter's notebook, some closing thoughts. It's impossible to know a man's heart and if he has truly repented. But there's an old saying that Jesus Christ must certainly live in the penitentiary because everybody finds him when they get there. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass second-hand tales and get their true crime fix here with Authentic Stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared,
2: don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.